When Vice President Lyndon Baines Johnson accompanied President John F. Kennedy to Dallas in November of 1963, LBJ's long political career seemed to be over. With rumors abounding that Kennedy was going to drop him from the ticket in the 1964 election, Johnson had resigned himself to returning to a quiet life on his Texas ranch. Then, an assassin's bullet forever changed Lyndon Johnson's political fortunes. I'm Oliver North, and in this War Stories podcast, you'll hear how a former Texas school teacher made a rapid ascent to become a political powerhouse. In the voices of those who knew him best, you'll learn the real story about the rise and fall of one of our country's most powerful and tortured presidents. Listen as LBJ's speechwriter describes how the president employed what came to be called the Johnson Treatment to push sweeping civil rights legislation and dramatically expanded federal social programs through a reluctant Congress. You'll also hear how LBJ stumbled into escalating, but never doing enough to win, the war in Vietnam. Racial violence, political assassinations, and growing opposition to the war made LBJ's tenure in office one of the most tumultuous in our nation's history. Listening to Johnson's advisors describe the war is, for me, a chilling experience. It divided our country, overshadowed his domestic policies, and forever tainted his legacy. When I sat down with LBJ's Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, Joseph Califano, He recalled how the weight of trying to lead our country through the chaos took a terrible toll on the man who envisioned America as the great society. The interviews we conducted with LBJ's closest advisors gave me a fresh perspective on his momentous indecision that resulted in my brother and I going to Vietnam, he as a soldier and I as a Marine. To this day, I vividly recall the televised address he made on 31 March 1968, when he shocked the world by announcing, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. LBJ sent us off to war. Richard Nixon would have to bring us home. If you're hiring, you know that quality hires keep your business moving forward. But you also know it can take a lot of time to find the right candidate for the right job. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job on over a 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click, so you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then, ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting, so you receive the best possible matches. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com strive. That's ZipRecruiter.com strive. One more time, get it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com strive. This was the home of one of the most accomplished and controversial of America's presidents. I'm Oliver North. This is War Stories, coming to you from Stonewall, Texas, in the hill country of the Lone Star State, 
the 2,700-acre LBJ Ranch. When Lyndon Johnson was president, he came here so often, 74 times, that this was known as the Texas White House. He said the time here was an opportunity to recharge myself for the difficult days ahead. And difficult days they were. Racial violence, assassinations, and growing protests over the Vietnam War made the 1960s one of the most tumultuous decades in our nation's history. As you'll see tonight, the weight of trying to lead our country through the chaos took a terrible toll on the man who envisioned America as the great society. Stay with us for a close look at the life and times of Lyndon Baines Johnson. Was Lyndon Johnson the consummate politician? He was the consummate politician. He, he knew how to use power. He was an aide to a congressman, a congressman, a senator, a Senate majority leader, a vice president, and a president. When a vibrant young president's life was cut short by an assassin's bullet, Lyndon Johnson unexpectedly arrived at the zenith of power. The 55-year-old former Texas school teacher was catapulted into the presidency. In terms of knowledge of the issues, in terms of political skills, he was in an excellent position to be president. The passage of great legislation in so many fields, Medicare, civil rights, education, were huge achievements. But all of that was overshadowed by one word, Vietnam. Vietnam tore the fabric of our country apart so badly. People didn't understand why we were there. Later in his presidency, President Johnson will have to confront the consequences of the decisions he made, the consequences of, of the lies. I think it's affected the way people have viewed Lyndon Johnson. Sam Mealy Johnson Jr. and Rebecca Baines Johnson welcomed the first of their five children into the world on 27 August 1908 at a small Stonewall, Texas farmhouse. Johnson's parents respected each other, and to a certain extent they, they loved each other, but they were, they were at war with each other. University of Arkansas Professor Randall Woods is the author of LBJ, Architect of American Ambition. She was a teetotaling Baptist. He was a heavy drinking rounder. And they both were uh, fervently committed to public service. What was his dad's background? He was a small businessman, and he was, for several sessions, a member of the Texas legislature. First a speechwriter for Lyndon Johnson, Harry Middleton later became the director of the LBJ Presidential Library in Austin, Texas. When Lyndon's growing up, is the family well off? No. They were always poor. He, he made good marks, but he had difficulty in school, I think because he became bored. And uh, also, he ran away all the time when he was a small child. He was running away, not to get away from home, but just, just to explore. When he graduated from high school at age 16, Lyndon's wanderlust led him far from home. Doesn't go right off to college? No. To the dismay of his parents, he decided to see California. And he got a job running an elevator, but it was not very satisfying. He came back to Johnson City and he began to drink and he was in a drunken fright one night and woke up to find his mother deeply crying over his situation and he was at that point so unhappy and ashamed that he told her yes he would go to college. In 1927 Johnson enrolled at the Southwest Texas State Teachers College 
in San Marcos, Texas. After he finished his junior year, he took a year out and he went to Catula, Texas, a small Mexican-American community way down in South Texas. And he taught sixth and seventh and eighth grades. That experience teaching those Mexican-American kids made an enormous impression on him. He saw kids who, after school, would go to the town trash heap and pick out things like grapefruit hulls because they had vitamins in them. Texas native Harry McPherson was fresh out of law school when he began working as an assistant to Senate Majority Leader Lyndon Johnson. He chronicled his experiences in the book, A Political Education. He said that if ever I were given the opportunity and the power to change the conditions of life for people like those children that I taught years ago, I would sure take advantage of it. He finished his final year, then went to Houston, and he was teaching a debate team. It was while he was doing that that the opportunity came for him to go to Washington and work as secretary to a congressman named Clayburg. He went to Washington as Dick Clayburg's secretary, and because Mr. Dick preferred to play golf and, uh, and play polo, uh, in essence, uh, Lyndon Johnson was the congressman from the 10th Congressional District. He ran the office. He ran the office. From that time on, school teaching did not come into his, uh, his life at all. It was all politics. He was a, a kind of uh, a professional protege. And he was pushy and aggressive and subservient at all at the same time. After he came to Congress, one of the first things he did was ingratiate himself with Sam Rayburn, Speaker of the House, another powerful Texan. <laughs> On a trip back home to Texas in 1934, Johnson met 22-year-old Claudia Alta Taylor in a lawyer's office in Austin. Nicknamed Lady Bird, she was the daughter of a wealthy Texas cotton farmer and merchant. He asked her to meet him in the coffee shop of the Driscoll Hotel. They had breakfast together. He begins to talk incessantly about how he's going to change the world, persuades her to take a ride around Austin. She said she felt she was drawn to him like a moth to the flame. And at the end of the day, he proposes to her. She said it was much too fast, but uh, the courtship went on for about three months, and then she married him. Johnson was a committed New Dealer. When he came to Washington, he was fascinated by the Roosevelt administration. Hi, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. After being elected president in 1932, Franklin Roosevelt promised the American people a New Deal, including bank reform and work relief programs to help get the country out of a crippling depression. In 1935, FDR appointed the well-connected Lyndon Johnson as the Texas director of the National Youth Administration, a program providing jobs like welding and bricklaying to unemployed youth. Johnson felt the pain and suffering of the poor people of his state and of the South. But when a special election was held for the 10th Congressional District in 1937, Johnson couldn't resist throwing his hat in the ring. He ran against a number of other candidates and managed to prevail, managed to win. When he got up elected to Congress at 28, he was ready to be a soldier in the ranks of the New Deal. And he became passionately committed to getting rural electrification. In the summer of 1941, Lyndon Johnson lost a hard-fought and controversial Texas Senate race to Lee Pappy O'Daniel. Sometimes there would be more than 20 speeches a day. It was a grueling pace. Johnson lost by little more than 1,300 votes. 
Less than six months later, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. When he was campaigning for the Senate, he said, if I have to cast my vote to put your boys in uniform, I will join them. So he joined the Navy. Soon after that, he went on this assignment inspecting installations along the Pacific coast. Soon after that, he went overseas. He spent his time in the Southwest Pacific in the very difficult early days of the war in 42. And essentially, he was the president's eyes and ears. Does he finish the war in uniform? No, because then uh, Roosevelt ordered all the congressmen in uniform to come back to Washington and resume their congressional duties or retire from office. Johnson returned to Congress and became a family man when Lady Bird gave birth to daughter Linda in 1944. Sister Lucy followed in 1947. But politics were again front and center by 1948 when LBJ made a second bid for the Senate. In a hotly contested battle rife with accusations of ballot stuffing on both sides, Johnson took on former Texas Governor Coke Stevenson in the Democratic primary. Johnson went into every community, shook as many hands as he could, gave impassioned speeches, and amazingly enough, managed to prevail. And at the end of the day, what was the margin? 87 votes, and it was Lyndon Johnson himself who coined the term landslide Lyndon. This is the one-room Junction School Lyndon Johnson began attending at the age of four in 1912. When War Stories returns, the former Texas school teacher becomes one of the most powerful senators in Washington. You'll also see how he used the Johnson treatment to get what he wanted. That's just ahead. Having narrowly defeated Coke Stevenson in the 1948 Democratic Senate primary, Lyndon Johnson easily won election that November. His ascent up the Senate ranks would be swift. He came to the Senate and in four years was the Democratic leader. Chosen as Senate Minority Leader in 1953, the 44-year-old Texan was the youngest Democratic leader in the party's history. After the Democrats swept the 1954 election, a newly re-elected Johnson was voted Senate Majority Leader. He had great ambitions. He was chairman of several committees, and he became uh, an enormously significant figure in American political life. He was a person who really knew how to use skillfully power. Illinois native Lloyd Hand was a 28-year-old law school graduate when he became an assistant to LBJ. He knew everything just about there was to know about every member of the Senate, and he knew how to play on every aspect of their life to get them to agree with him on what was a common way forward. One of his techniques was the Johnson treatment, a confrontational style that employed flattery, threats, intimidation, and powers of persuasion to make a recipient see things the right way. The Johnson treatment there was to get right in your face. Part of it was his physical stature. It would have been hard to do if he's four foot two, but he was six foot three. He was establishing a reputation as the most effective majority leader because he was able to combine forces and get legislation passed. But it came at a cost. The Texas Wheeler dealer was neglecting his health. Johnson was smoking incessantly, drinking too much, more than drinking. His eating habits were atrocious. You know, he'd eat fried foods, hot dogs. In 1955, Johnson had his first heart attack. It knocked him out of action for nearly six months. He barely survived. Went back to the ranch and recuperated. He had a choice there. He could have either retired to become a Texas rancher businessman, 
or he could risk his life and uh, jump back into politics. And of course, he, cho he chose, chose the latter. That heart attack obviously had a great effect on him for the rest of his life because from that time on, he was sure that time was, was limited. Though the U.S. military had been racially integrated in 1948, the American public wasn't. But by the 1950s, the civil rights movement was gaining momentum. In this rarely seen Fox movie tone clip, a young Martin Luther King discusses the Montgomery, Alabama bus boycott. We still advocate nonviolence and passive resistance. Eyeing a White House run in 1960, Johnson knew he couldn't lock up the Democratic nomination if the northern states saw him as a southern racist. In the summer of 1957, he was instrumental in ushering the first civil rights bill through the Senate in more than 80 years. He saw this as the occasion to make a name for himself, along with the fact that he believed in it. What's Johnson's role? He had to keep the Southerners from opposing it. He had to somehow keep the liberals in the camp. He managed to bring all of these forces together and get the bill passed. A weakened bill, but the first one that passed since Reconstruction days. In 1960, Johnson made a bid for the White House. I don't think going into the convention he had any hopes of getting the nomination. But in a surprising move, he settled for the vice presidential slot on a ticket with Massachusetts Senator John F. Kennedy. How does he get picked to be John Kennedy's running mate? Kennedy decided that he needed Johnson to carry Texas. By nominating Johnson, you get to appeal to, to the South and to the West uh, simultaneously. It's never been entirely clear to me that Jack Kennedy, when he made the offer, really meant it. And when Lyndon Johnson accepted it, it was too late to withdraw it. Bobby tried to get Johnson to withdraw it. And Senator Johnson said, well, look, Bobby, all you have to do is have your brother call me and tell me he's changed his mind. I didn't ask for it, and all he has to do is say he doesn't want me, and I'm off of it. Of course, Jack Kennedy never called it. How well did Robert Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson get along? About as badly as two human beings could be. This goes back to 56, when Joe Kennedy went to the ranch and tried to persuade Lyndon Johnson to be Jack Kennedy's running mate in 56, and Johnson wouldn't do it. Bobby considered Johnson an ingrate. But if he turned down the Kennedys in 1956, why did Lyndon Johnson agree to take a back seat to them in 1960? Because to be majority leader would have been a miserable situation. He knew that the Kennedys were going to be their own people and he was going to be marginalized. He was going to be powerless either way. So why not help the, why not help the party? Lyndon Johnson may have thought his best years were behind him, but in the fall of 1963, an assassin's bullet in Texas would forever change his political fortunes. That's next on War Stories. Twenty-six September 1960. 70 million Americans tuned in to watch the first of four debates between presidential candidates John F. Kennedy and a less photogenic Richard Nixon. Little more than a month later, Kennedy was elected president in one of the closest elections in American history. I, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear. 52-year-old Lyndon Johnson was now vice president. What's his experience as vice president? Satisfying job? It was not the kind of meat and potatoes menu that he was used to. Uh, so I think he was rather frustrated in, in that role. Two things he did was to head the space program 
and he headed EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission. The role of vice president is not one that really fully occupies a serious politician who's been doing such things as being majority leader of the U.S. Senate. He went overseas and made some foreign junkets, but he wasn't asked to come in and render advice very often. With a presidential election looming in 1964, a campaign swing through the Lone Star State was arranged for Kennedy in late November 1963. Lyndon Johnson accompanied the president and Mrs. Kennedy through several cities, including that fateful day in Dallas. When Johnson went to Dallas, he was demoralized, he was depressed. The rumors were that the Kennedys were going to drop him from the ticket. Uh, he was never going to be president. What was he going to do, go back to the ranch? And then overnight, Lee Harvey Oswald changed everything. Suddenly, there was a sharp, loud shot. Lee Harvey Oswald's assassination of John Kennedy as the president rode through Dallas traumatized the nation. One moment Johnson's dead politically and emotionally, and the next moment he's president of the United States with all the fear and anxiety, but all the opportunity. The actual transfer of power, the taking of the oath of Athens on the airplane. Constitutionally, the transfer of power took place the minute Kennedy died. That was all stage stuff. It was for the public. Johnson wanted to let the country know that the business of government was going to continue. Johnson came to my church uh, on Capitol Hill two days after the assassination of Kennedy. And he and I were talking when a Secret Service man came up and spoke to him to tell him that Lee Harvey Oswald had been shot in Dallas. He has been shot. Oswald has been shot. Lee Oswald. We're going to... Oswald has been shot. Johnson's face was ashen. He was staggered, clearly. The murder of Oswald by Dallas nightclub owner Jack Ruby two days after the assassination made a nation of Washington grief and despair increasingly skeptical. Was Kennedy's murder a conspiracy? Even LBJ wasn't sure. He was terrified that the Russians did it, terrified that the Cubans did it. He feared that if there was some communist connection, uh, Lord knows it might precipitate uh, World War III. On 27 November 1963, Johnson addressed a joint session of Congress. An assassin's bullet has thrust upon me the awesome burden of the presidency. I am here today to say I need your help. I cannot bear this burden alone. Two days later, LBJ appointed a panel headed by Chief Justice Earl Warren to investigate JFK's murder. It took almost a year for the Warren Commission to issue its 300,000-word report. It remains controversial to this day. He was immensely relieved when the report came in that it was the act of a lone individual because if it were something else, it would be so deeply divisive of the country when the country was in such a, such a fragile condition. When War Stories returns, LBJ's war on poverty is overshadowed by another war, Vietnam. John Kennedy's death commands what his life conveys that America must move forward. Immediately after the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in November of 1963, 
55-year-old Lyndon Johnson was sworn in as the 36th president of the United States. Johnson decided that he was going to take advantage of the shock and grief of the country that came from the assassination of Kennedy. He was able to move landmark legislation. LBJ declared a war on poverty and discrimination. It would be the cornerstone of what he envisioned as the Great Society. Project Head Start is the most exciting, productive, and practical project any government can embark on. He said, this is my opportunity. This, I've been wanting to do this since I was representing the 10th Congressional District. In June of 1964, these three young civil rights workers were murdered in Mississippi. The following month, Lyndon Johnson signed the first major bill of the Great Society, the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964. Thank you. He, working with Martin Luther King, put through the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is the one that bans discrimination in restaurants and hotels and all the rest, in schools and wherever the federal government spends money. That summer, Johnson also began campaigning against Republican Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater for president. Goldwater accused Johnson of being soft on communist aggression in Vietnam. Vietnam was not his baby. He inherited Vietnam. Kennedy decided in October of 1961 to commit 16,000 advisors into North Vietnam. Colonel H.R. McMaster is the author of Dereliction of Duty. And these advisors were doing as much fighting as they were advising. There was a belief that Vietnam fell to the communists. Then all Southeast Asian countries would also fall to the communists. Johnson was a staunch anti-communist. And the staunch anti-communists knew that escalation in Vietnam would come at a steep price at the polls. Johnson campaigned in 1964 as the peace candidate. Vietnam would get limited help, but it wouldn't include sending more American boys to fight in Asia. What Johnson wants most in 1964 is to be elected in his own right as president. And he views Vietnam principally as a danger to that goal. He said, Vietnam is the biggest damn mess I've ever seen. Early in his presidency, he expressed his fear of getting trapped in a war that he wasn't going to be able to get out of. Coming into the job of president the way he did with the assassination of his predecessor, he wanted to provide continuity. So he keeps on President Kennedy's closest advisors, and those included George Bundy, the National Security Advisor, and the Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, as well as the Secretary of State, Dean Rusk. That was his close inner circle, the people whom he felt he could trust. Do you think it's a mistake to explain about Vietnam and what we're faced with? Well, I, I do think, Mr. President, that it'd be wise for you to say as little as possible. So what he did is he made the decisions he could make that would keep Vietnam still on the back burner not require congressional involvement. August 1964. Two U.S. destroyers operating in the Gulf of Tonkin off the coast of North Vietnam were reportedly fired upon in two unprovoked attacks by the North Vietnamese. The incidents put the peace candidate in a tough position. I think he felt at that time that he had to show strength. He was running against Goldwater who had been accusing the Johnson people of being soft on the whole communist threat. Johnson's advisors told him he had to respond. Despite his doubts about the attacks, Johnson ordered retaliatory airstrikes against North Vietnam. When you 
include hostile actions against United States ships on the high seas in the Gulf of Tonkin have today required me to order the military forces of the United States to take action in reply. Within days, Congress passed the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. It gave Johnson nearly unlimited power to use force in Southeast Asia without a declaration of war. Robert McNamara and the Joint Chiefs of Staff knew that it was at least very likely that a second incident in the Gulf of Tonkin did not occur. But they were very anxious to support the president in getting this resolution through Congress and again avoiding a debate on Vietnam. The Tonkin Gulf resolution was a holding operation. Get through the administration, keep South Vietnam alive, and then reevaluate the situation. After the election. After the election. On 3 November 1964, Lyndon Johnson and running mate Hubert Humphrey won the presidential election in a landslide, an unprecedented 61% of the popular vote. During the next two years, Johnson pushed legislation through Congress at a rate unseen since the days of FDR's New Deal. Medicare provided health service to the elderly, Medicaid for the poor, urban renewal, federal education funding, and consumer protection laws all made their way through Congress, as did the Voting Rights Act. This act flows from a clear and simple wrong. Its only purpose is to right that wrong. That really empowered African Americans for the first time to be able to go to the polls, vote, and make their vote count. Bill Moyers, who was working for him, said, Mr. President, you must feel very proud. And he said, Bill, today we turned over the South to the Republican Party for as long as you and I will live. What gave him his greatest satisfaction? Was it working a political deal? Was it legislation? The Voting Rights Act. He said it was the greatest piece of legislation he passed. Former Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare and Harvard Law School graduate Joseph Califano was 34 years old when he became a special assistant to Lyndon Johnson. And indeed, all you have to do is look at America today. America is a place where all things are possible. LBJ fought hard to build his great society. But the war in Vietnam would soon unravel it. In early 1965, it became obvious that American-backed South Vietnam was losing the war. So this is a decision point for the president. And McGeorge Bundy goes to Vietnam to visit Vietnam. And while he's there, he witnesses an attack on an American base. As he comes back, he says, we have to start doing something now. The response was Operation Rolling Thunder. Started in March 1965, the systematic bombing campaign against North Vietnam was designed to pressure the enemy into ending their fight. It will be followed very closely by the introduction of Marines and then later Army units into South Vietnam, initially under the auspices of defending bases. Though Johnson had promised not to send more American boys to Southeast Asia, by the end of 1965, almost 200,000 troops were in South Vietnam. There are no people standing up and quitting and saying what we're doing is the wrong thing. George Bawley, Assistant Secretary of State, used to regularly tell the president and the war cabinet, you're making a mistake, you're making a mistake. Bronx native Ben Wattenberg is the host of the weekly PBS show Think Tank. 
He was a speechwriter for Lyndon Johnson. Johnson says, look, I know what I'm doing. I'm going into a land war in Asia, and uh, they're all going to turn on me, all my friends. I know it, but i got to do it. I'm the president. It's the right thing to do. This is something in which a person with great intentions takes steps which prove to be disastrous. I think he knew that he was now getting into something that he was never going to be able to get out of. President Johnson stuns the nation in an historic television moment. That's next on War Stories. In uh, July of 1965, Johnson still wants to avoid a debate on Vietnam. It's getting tougher for him because uh, the bombing has started. American troops are pouring into Vietnam. And General Westmoreland has requested a large number of troops. So what Johnson does is he understates the number of troops that General Westmoreland requests. And he understates the billions of dollars it's going to take to finance the war effort. Yet, Lyndon Johnson continued to increase the number of troops in Vietnam. By the end of 1966, the troop counted doubled to 400,000. LBJ also sent Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara on a fact-finding trip to Vietnam. Johnson said, well, what do you, what do you think the chances are of us prevailing? And McNamara said, one in three. He said, you have got to be kidding me. You told me a year ago during the escalation that it was one in ten that we'd lose. Vietnam was becoming Lyndon Johnson's war. By the end of 1966, more than 8,000 Americans were dead. He signed every letter for somebody killed in Vietnam. And he would cry sometimes. I mean, really would tear up. As the body count grew, so did the anti-war movement. So I could hear those cries, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? And I knew there was a long gulf between them and me, which neither of us could do anything about. Did he ever share any, with you any of his anxieties about the war? He sure did. On two or three occasions, he asked me, Cross, uh, what in the world can I ever do about that Vietnam War? Alabama native Jim Cross served as LBJ's Air Force One pilot. He was later a senior military aide to the president. I said, we're killing people over there all the time. And said, I'm just worried to death about it. LBJ had predicted that his friends would turn against him over Vietnam. One of the first and most prominent was Arkansas Senator J. William Fulbright, who held six days of hearings on the war in February of 1966. Martin Luther King would also publicly denounce the war, saying that, quote, the madness must cease. Did Johnson feel as though King had betrayed him on the war? I think he felt... Anybody that didn't support him on the war had betrayed him on the war. Johnson's sense of betrayal wasn't limited to those who'd opposed the war. Escalating racial tensions had led to riots in cities across the country. Though he never abandoned civil rights, he began to express resentment that African Americans weren't properly grateful. In July of 1967, four days of rioting in Newark, New Jersey, left 23 dead and destroyed over $10 million in property. Less than a week later, Detroit erupted, killing 43, causing 22 million in damages. As Detroit burned, LBJ went on television to speak to the American people. The looting and arson and plunder and pillage which have occurred are not part of a civil rights protest. That is crime. 
The unrest didn't stop. The summer riots were followed by a march on Washington, one of the biggest anti-war protests to date. It was October. We had 100,000 people on the mall. And the people on the mall were not the hippies. They were white, middle-class people who began to say, this war isn't worth my son. That's when we really started to have the backlash. With the country mired in dissent, Johnson's approval rating plummeted to 41%. Though U.S. troops on the ground numbered more than half a million, the bloody Tet Offensive by the North Vietnamese in Viet Cong in January of 1968 put America's progress in Vietnam in serious doubt. 1968 was also an election year. Harry McPherson vividly remembers a late March meeting with LBJ. I was talking about the election, and Johnson said, well, I may not run. Johnson was always telling people he wasn't going to run. Johnson was a great self-pity. And when he'd get to feeling sorry for himself, he'd say, oh, I'm not going to run. I'm just going to throw the towel in. Good evening, my fellow Americans. At 9 p.m. on 31 March 1968, LBJ won on national television to give a speech about Vietnam. When Harry and I worked on the speech, there's no ending. And Johnson said to Harry, don't worry about that. I'll take care of that. Johnson loved surprises. He loved to surprise people. At the end of the speech, Johnson stunned the nation. I shall not seek, and I will not accept, the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Where were you when he delivered that speech? I was in the basement of my house in Chevy Chase watching it and almost fell off the couch when I, when I heard him say it. I had no idea he was going to announce that he wouldn't accept the nomination again, that he wouldn't run. The president's announcement even caught his 24-year-old daughter Linda by surprise. She'd recently married Chuck Robb, a Marine serving in Vietnam. She was infuriated after the speech, came in in tears, just infuriated. Said, Daddy, you've abandoned Chuck and all those other boys. How could you do that? How could you abandon them? What was it that brought him to that? Was it the riots, the discontent in America, the war? What was it? But I think there were many factors. I think the most important factor was trying to get the Vietnamese seriously at the table to end the war. He simply couldn't bring that war to an end. And I think he believed if he took himself out of the political process, that he would do it. Johnson later referred to 1968 as, quote, one of the most agonizing years any president ever spent in the White House. I sometimes felt I was living in a continuous nightmare. 68 is a disaster for him. It's a disaster for everybody. Both King and Kennedy were, were assassinated. urban rioting, anti-war demonstrations across the country were returning uh, violent. And it culminates, of course, with the Democratic National Convention and the rioting outside. It appeared that the country was having a nervous breakdown. When War Stories returns, members of Lyndon Johnson's inner circle recall his last days at home here in Texas. Lyndon Johnson's tenure as president came to an end on 20 January 1969 with the inauguration of Richard M. Nixon. At the end, we had not been able to solve the problem of the Vietnam War. 
And that had cost a lot of lives, and it was something that broke Johnson's heart. He said, I'll need a friend after I get out of being the president. said, I won't have a friend left in the world. Would you be my friend? I said, of course, Mr. President. <laughs> the last few years of Johnson's life were spent with Lady Bird on his beloved LBJ Ranch in Stonewall, Texas. Harry Middleton assisted LBJ in writing his memoirs entitled The Vantage Point. He was very, very philosophical about what had happened. He said, you know, uh, we've been pretty well discredited now, and we've got to recognize that. And he says, history will change, but right now, the country is divided over Vietnam, and the country feels well rid of us. Johnson is the president everybody wants to forget. He changed uh, after he got back to the ranch. But, you know, he let his hair grow long, and he took smoking up again. And I think it was a very difficult, sad period uh, in his life. When he let his hair grow long, he may have been saying, I understand how you feel. I feel that way, too. I hate all this. I despise it. And I broke my heart and a lot of other hearts in trying to solve it, to bring it to an end. He had a couple of heart attacks at the very end in the last year, and I'm sure that there was some depression that had to set in after the one he had maybe eight months before he died. And then the final heart attack was the one that took him away. On 22 January 1973, Lyndon Baines Johnson died at 64. Five days later, the Paris Peace Treaty ended the Vietnam War. In looking back at Lyndon Johnson, what was his greatest strength that you saw? I'd say the way to use power. I think it's courage. I think what he did with civil rights, he knew he would pay a fearful price personally for it. He fought hard in order to help people who were least able to help themselves, whether it's war on poverty, civil rights, education, Medicare, Medicaid. He used arm twisting. He used this face to face. He used threats. He used every political trick that there is. And what was his greatest failing? His greatest failure was Vietnam. I think he ached over that war. And I think when he went into retirement and went into a real depression, he always wondered, was there something he could have done, something he could have done better? More on the life and times of Lyndon Baines Johnson when War Stories continues. This is the final resting place for the 36th President of the United States and his First Lady. Lyndon Baines Johnson certainly had a tumultuous tenure. He came to the Oval Office as a result of the assassination of a young and popular president. His handling of the bloody war in Vietnam fueled dissent at home and censure overseas. Yet, the result of his sweeping Great Society legislation is still evident today. Medicare, civil rights, voting rights, environmental programs, the endowment for the arts, consumer protections, to name just a few. His is a war story that deserves to be told. I'm Oliver North. Good night.
Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.